2: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot
1: of these were sponsored by the church.
3: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? You're um, always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
1: Welcome to The Magnificat, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernko, your co-host. <laughs> I'm, I'm Dean Detlaff, also your co-host. That's right. We're not doing any jokes this week. We're just doing the introduction. <laughs> I guess I blew it, though. That was kind of a joke in itself. Oh, boy. Um, this week on the podcast, we have David Brazil and Sarah Pritchard, uh, two very cool pastors from Abolition Apostles who are involved in a um, extremely neat and very well thought out um prison abolition ministry in uh louisiana it's a great uh conversation that we had with them fascinating work really excited to get uh to get involved actually and uh if you've never heard of them before you can go follow them on twitter at abolition church uh they also have a facebook uh group i think is just called the abolition apostles so um go ahead and do those things but uh but first before you do listen to our fantastic (laughs) episode with them This week on the podcast, we have David Brazil and Sarah Pritchard from Abolition Apostles. Uh, they're doing a really cool prison abolition ministry, and we're really excited to hear about it. So, David and Sarah, can you just tell us a little bit about um, about Abolition Apostles and what's going on with it?
3: Sure. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, well, we started Abolition Apostles in 2019 after several years, both Um, in collaboration with one another and separately of doing work that was related to jail and prison um, reform and abolition um, in one way or another uh, for several years. Um, And in 2019, we really uh, felt called by God to focus more um, specifically on jail and prison issues um, and to found this ministry which is really um, based on helping people on the outside to come into authentic relationship with incarcerated people, um, in part because we um, noticed in 2019, and we've only seen this phenomenon increase, and in with the recent um, sort of increase in attention to abolition as a discourse. Um, that there were a lot of people who called themselves abolitionists, who talked a good game about abolition, uh, but who were not doing, actively doing um, anything about abolition. And so we wanted to provide um, an outlet, for, particularly for people um, who are on the outside, who maybe are not directly impacted by mass incarceration, to come into authentic relationship with folks who are incarcerated and in so doing discover through those relationships um what it means to take practical steps towards abolition today um and so we have developed over the course of the last year and a half a five-fold um Plan for um, our ministry and strategy uh, in terms of how we think about approaching practical abolitionist um, organizing and support for people who are incarcerated. And the first um, piece is, as I mentioned, the pen palling. um, That's sort of how uh, folks enter, um, both folks on the inside and on the outside. Um, That's how they first come in contact with us and get involved in our ministry. Um, And then we also um, work through um, the relationships that we're developing with the incarcerated folks in our network to discover what their needs are and how we can as a community um, effectively collectivize the support that's needed for people. Um, So that can look like pooling money to put Um, money on commissary for folks that can look like discovering what legal resources might be available um, to connect people to. That could even look like doing some internet research that is really easy for those of us who are on the outside, um, but is a real challenge for people who are incarcerated who have very limited internet access. Um, So that's the second piece is like doing material support for people. The third piece is visitation, um, because we really believe that, especially for people who are not directly impacted, actually having the experience of putting your body into the prison um, is a life-changing one. That's definitely my witness, um, and we want to provide that experience for folks um, and also create yet another um, source of connection, um, which is so often a lifeline for people who are incarcerated and many of whom don't have family or um, other connections to folks on the outside. The fourth piece is advocacy. Um, And David and I are very much involved in um, abolitionist work um, and organizing here in New Orleans, but also nationally. And we um, work to connect the folks on the outside who are part of our pen program with opportunities to be involved in organizing um, in their cities across the country. And then the fifth piece is just re-entry support. Um, and so we're actually launching a program that we're calling RESET um, that stands for Reentry uh, support experience teams that's based on a couple of different models, um, but is essentially an accompaniment team for people who are re-entering from incarceration um, to help them do the practical uh, life stuff that uh, many of us take for granted, um, but that is often a barrier um, for people who have a criminal conviction. Um, and so that's the five-fold strategy that we, um, that we approach this work with um, and that we've developed over the course of the last year um, that really is all about, how do we start building abolition today um, and not uh, waiting for um, the you know great and glorious time when um, we're gonna burn down all the prison walls,
2: <laughs> um,
3: but actually like starting today, what are the practical steps that we can make towards abolition?
2: There, you know, you gave a lot of good information. I think, you know, we experienced a call from God um, around this ministry last year. And God basically gave us a vision of a new ecclesial model of communities across the country that would be in relationship to particular carceral sites. Um, and we had no idea how this was going to happen because we had uh, lives in Oakland. We had a church um, and a lot of roots there. Uh, and we didn't really understand how this uh, this was going to happen, but um, God sort of took away a lot of what uh, our life had looked like in Oakland, um, and made space uh, for this work, and led us also to New Orleans, which is the incarceration capital of the world. And so we are have been in relationship to um, Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which uh, a former plantation, um, which uh, still you know has a predominantly black population of inmates uh, doing field labor, um, supervised by white guards. Um, So, you know, we've been in relationship with that place and other places in Louisiana's kind of gulag archipelago um, since we arrived in New Orleans. Um, And we've begun to see the way that our work has spread. Um, Just in the past year, we've gone from a handful of people uh, meeting in our living room to uh, being able to support over 450 incarcerated people in 20 states with the help of hundreds of volunteers from across the country. So uh, some of that is you know, due to the uprise, uh, uprisings um, that have happened in the wake uh, of the murder of George Floyd and others that have led a lot of people um, to start having conversations about police and prison abolition. And some of it's a consequence of the um, pandemic which sort of forced our work online but therefore, also made it more available to people who weren't in New Orleans and Louisiana, and so um it's been a very fascinating experience so far, and it's only been you know a year and a half, and God has really given the increase so we're really excited about it and uh hopeful that other people, including the people who hear this podcast, will come join us and be part of this work, and laborers in the vineyard with us
0: yeah, thanks for laying all that out, especially the fivefold plan and explaining a little bit of uh, your own kind of um Uh, prayerful journey in all of this. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, how you got into this? So you say you you feel you felt this call to ministry. That's fantastic. Um, Were you invested in prison work in in Oakland or kind of part of these things for a while? How did you find these things coming together for you guys uh, doing ministry and also thinking about prison abolition? What's your, your background here?
2: Uh, I could say a little bit about that and then pass it to Sarah. Um, You know, Sarah and I uh, are uh, non-denominational Christian pastors with a sort of an unorthodox walk. Neither of us are ordained by any denomination, Um, but we experienced our pastoral call um, in uh, a season um, that brought us into the way of doing our work that, that commenced with a house church that started in Oakland. And that church was always based on a sort of a a radical understanding of the gospel. I mean, we don't think of it as radical, but the gospel is inherently radical. Um, and, you know, I often say, describing my faith walk as an adult convert, that I used to be a commie and now I'm a commie Christian, right? And so, you know, that's a story of Dorothy Day and many other people. Um, but it's not a story that gets told about contemporary American Christianity very much um, because of the way that the religious right has captured um, the idea of what Christianity even is. Um, which is a historical phenomenon that begins, you know, in basically in the 70s. Um, And it really hides the reality of of radical Christianity um, that goes all the way back to the first presence of Christianity in this country. And certainly black Christianity, which really um, nourished uh, and continues to nourish Sarah and I in our spiritual formation. So the background for us is like being anti-capitalists, fighting white supremacy and anti-blackness, um, discovering a religious idiom to do that, and then sort of clarifying that the the best way to take on these issues for us and the most meaningful was taking on prison abolition and the prison as the sort of privileged site for tackling both anti-capitalism and, uh, you know, white supremacy. Um, and so, uh, you know, those are the kind of paths that led us um, into doing uh, more prison work. It always used to, it was always part of the picture for us, um, but uh, thanks to Sarah, and I'll turn it over to her, you know, we were really led into some clarity about um, the, that being the sort of single focus of our work that would illuminate everything else in the process of doing it. So if you want to talk about Luis and the hunger strike.
3: Yeah, um, so I mm-hmm. have been I have been um, penpalling with a uh, person who was part of the Pelican Bay hunger strike um, that began in 2013. Um, his name is Luis. And he and I, um, although we had been pen pals for several years, had never had the opportunity to meet in person um, because he is now locked up in Calipatria, which is um, sort of on the border, um between California and Mexico. Um, and so I could, I was never close enough um, to that part of California that it made sense for me to go visit until um, in February of last year, David and I had the opportunity to actually finally go meet Luis. Um, and it was through that experience and encountering Christ, um, where Christ says that we will find him Um, which is in prison, um, and encountering Christ, not only um, in the person of Luis um, and uh, in other prisoners, but also um, in our interactions with family and friends um, who were visiting other folks who were inside. Um, Really, that whole experience uh, is a piece of how we got, how we arrived at um, the call to really focus our work so much on jail and prison. Um, and it was on that trip to visit Luis that we actually received the vision um, from God that David spoke to around new ecclesial um, communities that are in relationship to carceral sites.
2: Yeah. And Sarah, you know, of course alludes to the, you know, very familiar passages in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. And I think especially for social justice Christians, uh, on the progressive to radical um, you know, uh, spectrum, this scripture can become over-familiar to the point of cliche and deadness. But the reality is, you know, just as the Sermon on the Mount demands to be taken literally, Matthew 25 demands to be taken literally. And Christ says, this is where you're going to find me. You're going to find me um, in prison. You're going to find me among those who are hungry, among those who are not clothed. Um, and so, you know, this is what the Catholic workers call the, doing the corporal works of mercy, right? Um, meeting the needs of those people. But also, if we are seeking to be disciples uh, and in the path of discipleship um, and looking at the cost of discipleship, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, then we need to understand, as Bonhoeffer further says, that uh, Christianity is not a religion. It's a discipleship, which means that you get up and go um, like uh, the people at the tax table. You know, and so we, you know, know that our own discipleship requires us to go where Christ is to follow where Christ is, and an an important part of our clarity in in 2019 is also that we discovered more and more that the predominantly white and progressive to radical um, uh, Christian spaces that we found ourselves in um, were not uh, bringing the tools of discipleship uh, in a way that we found authentic, um, and therefore, we're becoming vitiated as, as sites of, um, of discipleship and of religious practice, and they're also therefore of accountability to the least of these. So that was a really eye-opening um, experience for us, and one that we're still kind of reckoning with um, and thinking about, but you know, we were convicted, um, and we want to sh- basically share that conviction with other people. To say that, you know, just mastering a discourse, whether it's about abolition or anti-racism uh, or anything else, and ca- capitalism doesn't mean anything. Um, not all those who say, Lord, Lord. Right. So and, and everybody likes to quote James and faith without works is dead. So we have to be looking to, you know, what does it mean not only to uh, believe these things and not only be able to speak these things, to be, be not just speakers of the word, but doers of them because the last thing the world needs is Twitter abolitionists. Right. So we need to be continually transforming ourselves in order to really bring abolition into the world.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Sarah, something that you'd mentioned uh, a few times in, in, uh, you know, part of your story, how you got to prison abolition um, was about writing letters and sharing a pen pal relationship. And I think that's a really. Um, really cool thing. I don't to say about that. It's cool. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I guess, could could you maybe speak to that a little bit? I mean, I know that uh, the pen pal relationships are a big part of, uh, it, you know, they're in the five-fold strategy that you all have. And it seems like it's a part of like, you know, really what you do. And I, I think it'd be interesting for for our listeners to kind of hear what, what that's all about. Um, you know, how is that connected to abolition overall? Um, and then um, m- maybe if like a, a good story or something kind of meaningful sticks out to you about a uh, pen pal, you could share that with us too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that for us, pen is important for a few reasons. Um, first is that it refuses the logic of social death that um, the prison depends upon, um, that uh, you know, certain people are just beyond the pale and therefore they deserve to be put away, locked up, out of sight. Um, we don't think about them um, unless we know someone or our families are directly impacted right um and so creating these connections and relationships through pen palling refuses that logic and um insists on the fact that people who are in prison are in fact people um that they deserve to have human connections and relationships and friendships just like everyone else um, and so, therefore, pen is an abolitionist practice. Um, and I think the other piece, too, is just as I said earlier, that um, so often there are people who are, um, particularly people who are newer to discourses on abolition, who maybe have read Angela Davis and are you know posting things about hashtag abolition um which is a great first step but they actually have no direct experience of what it actually means um and the impact that incarceration has on people's lives and so building these authentic relationships through pen um it's my experience and witness that that relationship can be transformative for people who are not directly impacted. Um, And so we hope to offer that experience, particularly to um, folks on the outside who are pen pals. Um, And we know from talking with formerly incarcerated folks, as well as um, our pen pals on the inside, that pen palling, it can be a really important lifeline uh, for people who are incarcerated, that, like, people often um, are really cut off from any kind of connection with the outside world. And so just building a relationship and a friendship with someone who's on the outside um, and with someone who's also connected to a whole network that um, is working towards practical steps um, for freedom and liberation for all people who are in prison, um, that can be a real source of hope, of encouragement, and of strength for people who are incarcerated. Um, and in terms of your question about, like, specific stories, um, I think for me, um, a current pen pal of mine, um, his name is Frank, jumps to my mind, and, um, I got connected to Frank, who is incarcerated at Angola, uh, which is the state penitentiary here in Louisiana that David mentioned earlier. Um, And Frank has been locked up since 1964. He um, was incarcerated in the 60s because of a practice that was common, especially in New Orleans at the time of Emptying the books um, on specifically black men. Um, when police would pick someone up who fit the description, um, they would basically uh charge that person with any outstanding case that the police had not yet been able to solve. Um, and so this happened to Frank. And as a result, he has been in prison for over 50 years. Um, He and I have been writing to one another um, since, I guess, the middle of last year. Um, And I was able to actually go visit him uh, at Angola in December, which was a real blessing. Um, And I think for Frank, um, it's been, I think, a real source of hope and encouragement just to know that um, there is someone and there are people who um, care about um, him and about people like him. And, um, you know, it was really telling when I went to visit him that uh, one of the things that he said um, in, over the course of our visit was like he remarked on how shocked he was that I was a white woman. Um, and that, like specifically, like white folks care about black folks who are in prison, <laughs> um, and that there are white folks who care about black folks in prison, right? Um, and so I think that piece has been really um helpful for Frank, and we're also working on how do we leverage the resources that we're connected to um to try and um, get some relief for his case, um, and so we've you know connected with our uh, friends in the legal community, and various pro bono lawyers have taken a look at the materials um, that actually uh, this guy Darren Hooks, who's a um, inmate counsel, uh, has put together for Frank, um, and we're trying to see what we can do to get some relief for Frank, particularly in this new time where he is definitely um, among the most vulnerable to coronavirus. Um, He has already been hospitalized um, in the time of the pandemic, Um, and so seeking relief for him, also on the grounds of uh, humane medical release as well.
0: That's really neat that you can share that. Um, And I think, I mean, one thing that really strikes me is super valuable about the work that you guys are doing is premising things on pen pal relationships as a an origin makes abolition really um uh accessible or tangible you know i I think a lot of people hear about something like prison abolition and it feels like way too much or like where are we even going to start and uh that kind of thing seems like it's always a, a good sort of place and hopefully accessible to christians as well um Maybe you could uh, help us think about that piece a bit more. So we, we've had Christians on the show in the past to talk about abolition. And I think it's always really interesting for Matt and I anyway to hear people connect their faith and abolition work. Um, could you do that a little bit for us here? Like, why should Christians be into police and prison abolition? What is the connection um, you've both mentioned? Obviously, that's a massive part of your life and a huge sort of driving piece of uh, your, your ministry. Um, could you connect some of those dots for us a bit?
3: Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say um, is that we take our stand on scripture. Um, And so we already mentioned the Matthew 25 passage as such a touchstone for us and for so many. Um, But it also says in the book of Hebrews that we are to remember those in prison as if we were there with them. Um, And not to mention the... Multiple letters of Paul uh, where he literally says that he is in chains for the gospel, um, and the number of times in uh, both the gospel and the gospels and um, the book of Acts where God's people are actually found in prison, um, and so for us, we we believe that the scripture tells us um, that we are to look for God and God's people in jail and in prison, um, and therefore that God desires freedom and liberation, um, for those people. Um, so that's the first thing to say. I think, uh, the other thing to say is also just that abolition, uh, for us is connected to the abolition, not only of prison, but also uh, capitalism as an economic system that's based on the total subjection of whole groups of people. And um, the United States, in the United States, that's of course racialized cap- capitalism it's based on white supremacy and anti-blackness. Um, and so, abolition means not only prison abolition, but the abolition of all forms of domination um and oppression and that's what we believe about God and that's what we believe about um what is possible in and through um the power of the gospel.
2: Yeah I guess I would add, you know, the Black Liberation theologian James Cohn says that the, the single overarching theme of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is liberation. Um, and you know we stand with Cohn on that. And we believe that the God disclosed in the scripture is a God of liberation. Um, the God that frees the Israelites in Exodus, um, which was the favorite book of the Bible of Nat Turner. Um, the God who prophesies uh, redemption from Babylon in the book of Isaiah and in the many, um, prophetic books where it speaks about liberation of the captives. Um, And on to Christ in Luke 4, quoting Isaiah and uh, talking about um, letting the captives go free and uh, indeed elsewhere in the scripture about uh, leading captivity itself captive. So the truth is that um, this connects the idea that this would be alien to Christians speaks to a much deeper issue, which is, uh, you know, what we call the imperial heresy, which is to say the, as Martin Luther said, the Babylonian captivity of the church um, and the way that um, the scripture and the tradition that are so precious have been repeatedly buried under um, a lot of uh, dreck, ultimately, uh, and uh, a lot of what uh, uh, Bishop Barber calls a slaveholder religion, um, not just in America, but going all the way back to Constantine and the, you know, the adaptation of, uh, of Christianity by the empire. Um, so these are the kind of deeper issues that have informed Sarah and I's theological and church work for many years, uh, starting with our church in Oakland and now continuing with our church um, in New Orleans uh, called Apostles Fellowship. And a lot of our work is essentially just exegeting scripture uh, from a liberation perspective, uh, often for the healing purposes for people, younger people who have uh, you know, been harmed by church trauma, especially queer and trans people. Um, But a lot of people have been driven out of church by reactionary and conservative, um, you know, ideas. And so, you know, for us, the last thing I guess to say about abolition is that from a strictly, you know, I would say conservative in quotes sense, meaning founded on the scripture. God is about abolition and Jesus is about abolition because God, through Christ, abolishes sin and abolishes death. And this is just this is straight up Paul you know, and the Pauline tradition that runs through Augustine on up. And, uh, you know, those things are destroyed. And so abolition is just another way of saying that the principalities and the powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians six are destroyed by what Christ does on the cross. And that's abolition. And we believe that um, the violence and the death that the prison and chains represent is exactly that death that has been abolished. Um, And that's the good, that is the good news. That is the singular good news of the gospel that that Christ has abolished sin and death and that we can partake in that, in that, um, victory.
1: Yeah. sounds like good news to me. Um, yeah, I mean, that really resonates with us. I think for sure. Um, what, what you're saying I think makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the Christian part of it I think is always really fascinating for Dean and I, but I guess, um, the the part that I always have to keep coming back to and reminding myself of is that abolition is also big, like bigger than Christianity in in the sense that not all abolitionists are Christian. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Some people are not motivated by that and that's fine. But what do you think, like, uh, as being people who are specifically Christian abolitionists and doing this kind of work, like, what does that really bring to the table? That I mean, um, that other non-religious abolitionists might leave out. You know, is there like a is there a a moral weight to being a Christian abolitionist that isn't there otherwise? I I don't know. What does the Christian part do specifically? Do you think for the for the abolition movement at large?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and I guess what I would want to start with in thinking about that is that we have to study history and movement history specifically but history in general to understand how social change happens and i think that people who are seasoned activists understand this and so in terms of prison abolition you know we understand ourselves and this is thanks to you know angela davis and the many mentors mostly black women who have pioneered this discourse you know for of whom we're like the unrighteous beneficiaries that, um, that prison abolition movement is, uh, is an unbroken chain from the abolition movement of the 19th century that, um, that fought against slavery. And that just as we can sketch the diabolical diagram that goes from slavery to convict leasing to Jim Crow to you know, the present um, prison industrial complex, so too we can trace a genealogy that goes unbroken from you know, the abolitionist, the, um, the inter-ethnic uh, abolitionist movement uh, involving white black folks and other folks too um, through white black solidarity during radical reconstruction um, and on and on um, up to, you know, the, the black liberation movement that that we call the civil rights movement. But if you study that history, right, what is the red thread? The red thread is that almost everybody involved in that work is a Christian, right? Whether they're white or black or other ethnicities. You know, John Brown was a Christian, Harriet Tubman was a Christian, Nat Turner was a Christian, William Lloyd Garrison was a Christian. And I'm not just talking like Bible going, everybody in the 19th century was a Christian. They were like founded on their Christianity. John Brown read the gospel to his family every night around the dinner table. And so, you know, everybody knows, or I think most people know that, you know, the the black liberation movement that we call the civil rights movement is a church movement, right, you know, and people talk about King and the many other figures. Um, who were, motiv- you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and a lot of the women and less well-known figures from the civil rights movement. And it gets talked about as a church movement, but sometimes I wonder what people think that means. Does it mean that they met in churches? That's not the important thing about it being a church movement. The important thing about the church movement is that people are founded in their roots, in a, into an intergenerational um, tradition of total faith um, in the power of God and the saving grace of Jesus. And I think when you're looking at people who are getting dogs and fire hoses on them, you know, in those photographs, what you're not seeing is the spiritual preparedness um, that allows people to withstand that degree of brutality and indignity. So I think that um, if we look at the movement history, and we look at the changes that we've seen happen, then by their fruits shall you know them. Like, we have to take seriously, like, this is how that happened. This happened in and through I'm not making a case for, you know, Christian exceptionalism, but I am pointing to something that's inarguable from history and that has from American history, certainly. And it has educated me, Um, you know, and I would also like to think about just like us learning from what didn't work in um, the political movements, especially of the 60s uh, and 70s, of which so many of us are the inheritors And many of which dynamics are are playing out again uh, in our season and are perpetual, really, in terms of infighting um, and uh, recrimination, in terms of uh, unaddressed sexual violence and harm, in terms of addiction, burnout. Um, You know, Sarah and I were really brought to our work as pastors because we were organizers first and not professional nonprofit organizers, although we have worked in those fields, but, you know, working in the community. Uh, especially during and after Occupy Oakland and the Occupy movement um, to, and we saw the way that uh, burnout and these things uh, really affected people. We were like, we need a spiritual foundation. Uh, We need to help be part of creating the spiritual foundation for the movements of our time, which has remained our work for like the past decade. And we view this as part of that because this is a very, very hard time as we all know, but it's only in all likelihood only gonna get worse. And we don't really have the option and the luxury um, to burn out because we need everybody um, that we can field for this particular spiritual battle. So um, those are, I guess, some of my reflections. Sarah, do you want to share anything?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, what David was pointing to, particularly at the end, is definitely part of my thinking around the unique um, place of Christian belief in the struggle for abolition. Uh, In that we like to say that abolition begins in the heart um, and that something that I um, struggle with um, in many uh, secular radical spaces uh, is an inability to actually stay at the table um, and in relationship with people when there has been harm um, done in community or when there is conflict. Um, and people have perceived harm as a result of that conflict. Um, and that's a big part of, as David said, why we started to do our church work, because we we realized that, um, pr- first of all, people need spiritual foundation and formation in general um, if we're going to do this work. And second of all, um, because of the Christian injunction to forgiveness um, and to a shared horizon of forgiveness um, that we can look to in Christian community. I think that there is um, an ability, or I believe that there's an ability to um, foster the skills that we need to build abolition, um, not only out there, not only for communities that um, those of us who are not directly impacted um, may or may not be really in relationship with, um, but actually for ourselves, for our relationships and our communities um, so that we can refuse the logic of social death um, and incarceration in our own communities first and have a horizon of reconciliation and forgiveness um, that's based on a shared understanding and faith.
2: Yeah, and I would add to that. Thank you, Sarah, that was very well said. Years ago, I organized with a woman who asked a question, and this was a secular organizing project. She said, how can we expect to bring about the revolution if we're jerks to each other today, right? And I've thought about that a lot ever since, and I think it really puts a finger on this question around abolition, um, which is basically, how can we expect to quote unquote, burn down the prisons, like if we don't have the tools to get along with one another and um, deal with negotiating conflict and even harm in community. And to get more specific, um, there are a lot of uh, white people who proclaim abolition, um, presumably thinking of like black people they don't know in prisons far away, but don't have the patience and the wherewithal to negotiate even minor Conflicts, let alone serious harm in their community. And that is not adequate as uh, a profession of abolition. You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, likes to say, and people quote her saying, that abolition is a presence. That is to say, it's something that we have to create in community. But what we have to create is the frameworks of reconciliation. Um, And if we can't figure out how to get along around minor stuff, then we're actually not ready um, for. The major stuff. Um, so these these are some of the issues that you know we wrestle with a lot in our theology as well as in our organizing.
1: Um, there's so much good stuff in what y'all just said. <laughs> I like I like it all, and I want to talk about it all, but we don't have enough time probably. Um, so one thing that you, you said, well, I, I mean, on on this point about being you know being present and like figuring out how to negotiate these like other other types of crises and disagreements within our communities. Something that Dean and I say quite a bit on the podcast is that being a Christian should at least make you a good comrade and I guess I'm, I'm picking up that vibe from you all as well um uh David one thing that you mentioned a minute ago though was sort of like the spiritual grounding uh that like Christian uh abolition gives you particularly and I think that's really uh, a really good way to put it um it strikes me though that when you're kind of telling that story about um you know the civil rights movement as a, as a church movement right and that that spiritual grounding that those activists had that that's totally true I, I don't disagree but i guess what what strikes me is that the people the the people with the fire hoses and the people with the dogs um they would have also thought of themselves as having a spiritual grounding too you know and i guess i wonder um you know you, you all are kind of in this work now um have you like what responses have other uh, um, other Christians less aligned with you had to say about your work? Or how how have they taken uh, your approach to abolition? Or, or have you not really had those uh, run-ins?
2: It's a really great question. And of course, you're totally right. And the famous line from Dr. King about 11am on a Sunday is still the most segregated hour mm. um, in American life, you know, remains true. Um, and, you know, it, we live in the South, where, you know, historically, there are often like, each denomination will have its white church and its black church, Um, you know? So that stuff is like written into the landscape and the architecture of America. Um, And uh, it's a challenging issue. Um, But a lot of what brought me into becoming a Christian, um, really during and after Occupy, uh, was the belief and the faith that scripture and the truth that scripture reveals form a common and bring us into the possibility of a common relationship and understanding, at least for those who profess Christ, to, to, to meet and say, like, okay, like what do you think about this scripture? Let's talk about it. And like, what do you think? You know, we we often teach using the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, um, you know, meaning uh you know, scripture, experience, uh, reason and tradition. Um, so we don't just bring scripture, we also bring our experience of what God's grace means in our lives. So we we um, understand what the scripture means through our personal experience of God's love, right? So like when we speak to people, you know, how do we talk to them about like, this is how I understand the scripture. This isn't just like a story I'm making up. That's the thing that I think was important for us. We used to I think, fancy ourselves as, as the preachers of the radical gospel or the anti-imperial gospel or you know some kind of adjective gospel. And there is no radical or anti-imperial gospel. There's just the gospel, which is more radical and more anti-imperial than anything humans could ever make. And that's why we have gotten a little more precise terminologically about what we characterize as the imperial heresy. And I would say that the people sicking the dogs We're benefiting or, you know, we're indoctrinated by that, you know, slaveholder religion and uh, an imperial heresy, you know, that we mentioned that, you know, we don't have time enough to tease out, but goes all the way back, as I said, to Constantine. And so, you know, what does it mean to talk to people who are, you know, not necessarily in alignment? Um, We just bring the scripture that feels relevant. We're not trying to, you know, I had a correspondence with somebody who does reentry work um and uh you know i reached out to him because he has a with his wife a halfway house and you know we wanted to connect we're trying to connect with people across the country who are resourcing uh incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people so if you know any such people please put them in touch with us but he's obviously coming from a much more conservative um, background he you know he let me know that he wasn't a social gospel kind of guy and you know, he, he had a different understanding of scripture. And I just, you know, wrote back and I was like, you know, I, I appreciate your candor. Uh, I think Matthew 25 makes it very clear that, like, being a Christian is inseparable from the call of justice. Um, you may not feel like we have anything to say to one another, but we are given the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul says, you know, and just like gently say, like, we're supposed to be in relationship. And also, right, like, we bring humility. Sarah and I pray daily. Or regularly for vision and humility, um, and the vision balances out the humility, but the humility balances out the vision. And if we're in humility, then we don't necessarily think we have something to teach or educate or school other people about, right? And that's something that I think is super important for Christians at all times, and especially in this moment. Is you know Saint Augustine says, um, "Just as for the orator, the first rule is persuade, the second rule is persuade, and the third rule is persuade." So for the Christian, the first rule is humility and the second rule is humility and the third rule is humility. So in talking with people who I may feel like I disagree with I'm ready to be convicted, right? I'm ready to be like, okay, show me, show me how my understanding of the gospel is wrong, not in an antagonistic way, but like speak to me, God, through another believer and another believer's discipleship. And so I took those letters from this more conservative guy very seriously and I weighed them against my quadrilateral, my understanding of the scripture, God's love, and I was like, no, I think I don't think that that vision uh, that he's describing is what I believe about God's love, and particularly about witness, right? Because they will know you're Christians by your love, as it says. And so that witness to be like, we are doing love as a as a ministry. You know, abolition apostles is a um, we can, we say it's a Christian ministry, but you don't have to be Christian to participate. The doors are open whether you're on the inside or the outside. We're not excluding anybody um, from this because that's not how we that's not how we understand the gospel. And so. You know, that might, you know, rub some people the wrong way or they think, oh, it can't be a Christian ministry if it involves non-Christian people. But I would say rather that we're continually witnessing to Christ's grace and peace. And when people, you know, are ready um, to to cop to their J curiousness and ask us, so what's all this Jesus stuff? Then we can talk to them about that. And if that moment never comes, that's fine, too. But, you know, the door, the door is open. Do you have anything you wanted to add to that?
3: I don't think so. Um,
0: well, we are going to ask you, we'll, we'll close asking you a question about uh, how people can connect with you and, and enter through that door. Uh, before we do that, I have kind of a maybe off the wall question. I know that our time is running short, but uh, it just occurred to me. Um, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to say it because it's just sort of um, gestating in my brain, but I'll try it out. Uh, as I've been listening to you guys talk, one thing that I find so kind of fascinating is um, the the rhetoric that you use Reminds me so much of uh, I spent a, a, a sort of formative stint in uh, really evangelical uh, circles for better and for worse. You know, one thing that Matt and I always say on this podcast is like uh, being evangelical turned us into communists uh, kind of on accident. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't find myself in those spaces anymore, but it's it's interesting to kind of um, hear the language that you're using. And I, I'm, I'm so curious about that. Um, you know, maybe you wouldn't sort of uh, understand that as evangelical rhetoric. You know, I'm, I'm projecting my own kind of past onto what what you're saying. But um, you know, you 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 for example, uh, people don't know, but we opened the podcast with prayer uh, ahead of time because you guys had had uh, asked invited us to do that, which we, we've never done on this podcast before in the past. So that tells you a little bit about our our piety or lack thereof, maybe. And um, uh, all that to say, I, I I'm I'm so I don't know what it is. I, I appreciate hearing that language in such a different register. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, you know, what what do you make of that? What what's the deal with that? What's going on there? How does that connect with other other folks who use that kind of language of you know? our personal faith is is so significant and, and really kind of leaning on those kinds of things. Uh, does that make sense what I'm sort of circling around
2: anyway? Definitely. Yeah. And I guess I could say a little bit about that and then turn it over to Sarah. I mean, my first thought is the song, which is actually like an evangelical song that goes, uh, I went down to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. You know what I mean? Like the devil can't have it, you know, and like um, forms of Christianity that are rigid, that are anti-life, that are homophobic, that are racist and white supremacist. they can't have the gospel. It's too precious to let them have. And this is, again, what we talk about in terms of the imperial heresy. Constantine can't have it. The Roman army can't have it, you know? So that's like, in my heart, the first thing to say is that it's too important. Um, it's what God gave us. And like, as with all good gifts, humans screw it up, right? Like with the creation and everything else. Um, But Christ redeems it um, and redeems us from sin. And in terms of like what I think you're hearing in the evangelical uh, register, which is kind of funny to hear, because, again, I'm an adult convert whose formation is basically through historically African-American Methodist churches. And Sarah um, came up in like white Methodist churches, but likewise was formed in kind of black churches across different denominations. No real evangelical in that formation. But um, the way that I think we have gotten formed is, is very ecumenical in the sense that um, we look for, uh, you know, like, like, like Paul says, uh, you know, whatever is good, think on these things. So we, you know, the things that seem to speak to the spiritual realities that we know and have learned about in our Christian walk, we use them. So like one thing I know is super evangelically is being like convicted, You know, like I know that's evangelical language, you know, Um, but it's first of all, it is scriptural, right, that we can point to passages where we talk about, you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, But also it names something very real, which is that we feel a twinge or a pang and we know that, you know, um, our conscience, as Paul says, convicts us. And we can hear that in the in sermons that convict us uh, in scripture um, you know, or as my Methodist, uh, former pastor in Oakland used to say, don't blame me for the spanking the Holy Spirit is giving, you." right? <laughs> so that also comes out of that tradition. It just is a, is a shorthand, uh, you know, to, to say convicted and people understand what it means. I guess also, um, as pastors, you know, we've both been pastors, uh, uh of diverse groups of people for, you know, the past five years, mostly young people, and as I said, mostly people dealing with church trauma, queer and trans folks, and that's an ecumenical group of people. But a bunch of them are, you know, um, post-evangelical or in flight from the evangelical. So we both have evolved a language that helps has helped us to be pastors to those people. But we have also actually learned um, from those people, uh, like elements of how they speak. Um, And adopted them in the same way that like when somebody prays in a way that you find effective, you take the prayer, you know, because it works. And so, you know, those are, I guess, some of the some of the things Sarah and I was talked about the way that a lot of times evangelical formation um, helps give people discipline, uh, which might be what y'all are talking about in terms of like becoming commies um, that we noticed like some of our best deacons um, and people who are assisting us in the ministries of the church who are really reliable like uh you know, came from evangelical backgrounds, and uh so that that could also play a role. do you wanna say anything about that?
3: Yeah, I think all that was really good and true, and I think um the only other thing that I would add is just that um I think a huge part of what David is saying about um that we can't we can't let the devil have um is. Our foundation in scripture. Um, And I think that it's a huge mistake that many um, progressive, liberal to progressive white um, churches do, which is to choose to ignore altogether um, basically the parts of the Bible that make people feel uncomfortable Um, instead of. Actually, using the quadrilateral and what we know about God um, to really study the Scripture and take it as seriously um, as we should, um, because for me, um, the Scripture is too important to throw out um, and to mistreat like that. Um, and it's actually, uh, as as Paul says in Ephesians six, um, where he talks about. Uh, putting on the full armor, the word of God is the only offensive weapon that we are given uh, in that suit of armor. And so we need to take it seriously. We need to take our stand on it. Um, And I think we need to get out of the bad habit of deciding that it's okay to just ignore whole parts of the scripture um, because of a fear of alienating people.
2: Yeah, and I guess I would just add, Sarah and I often say in our church, like, the progressive churches often attend to structural sin, and the uh, conservative churches attend to personal sin. And what we're really interested in is essentially the dialectic between those two things, um, how they relate, but also what it means to be freed of both of them simultaneously through Christ's grace, right? And so that's something that, you know, we've been working through a series on the book of Revelation, Um, in part, because we're asked by some of our prison pen pals, what we thought about it. And, uh, you know, I wrote a little essay on it that I can send y'all. Um, but, uh, it's been instructive to look at some of the challenging stuff in Revelation and be like, oh, this is about the death of the empire and also about the death of the empire in our hearts. So in fact, it could not be more relevant to, you know, the sort of struggle for the destruction of white supremacy in 2020. And I think, you know, another thing that, you know, we probably alluded to is that, you know, evangelical foundation in scripture is really strong. And that's also been a blessing in our congregants. And it's probably also, you know, something that you're hearing, although really for us, it comes more from like black church and the way that, you know, the scripture is just in people's mouths. But I know there's like a different version of that that is is real in even in like white evangelical communities. But and and that's not wrong. That's good, you know. And people should know the scripture, should know Paul, and, and and the ins and outs of the theology. But the most important thing to say is that it's not spiritual, uh, or it's not only spiritual. It is spiritual, but it's also social, and those two things are in that interpenetrating dialectic. And when we spiritualize the gospel and make it about things that aren't in the world, um, that's one of the major moves of a, a sort of an imperial um, theology, right. And it's about our personal piety and our righteousness and our savedness rather than all of the places in scripture where we're enjoined to justice, mercy, caring for the widow, the stranger, the child, the person in prison, um, and all these things. So, um, I just wanted to share that as well.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate you guys sharing that, (laughs) that larger story about, um, yeah, I mean, your spiritual formation and where all that's coming from, that's, um, Hopeful to know as part of the story of um abolition apostles. Um well maybe now uh, we can ask you the the real big question. Uh for the folks that are listening, uh, how can they get involved? Like how could they uh get a a a, a pen pal or something? How would um how'd they go about doing that?
3: Yeah, so folks who are interested in becoming pen pals with incarcerated people um, can email us at abolitionapostles at gmail.com. And we'll send them, we have sort of some introductory materials um, that are helpful, especially for people who may not have ever written to someone who's in prison before. And then we also host a weekly Zoom session that is on Sundays at 3 p.m. Central Time um, that we invite everyone to, um, you don't even have to be actively pen-paling to join, um, and It's in part a political education series um, because we recognize that given the increased attention and awareness around um, issues of police and prison abolition, um, we wanted to be part of helping people who are newer to this um, discourse to understand the intersecting issues. Um, And so we have a rotating weekly speaker who joins us and we've had some really amazing organizers from across the country speak um, in that hour. And then it also provides an opportunity for people who are new to our work to learn about um, the pen and to ask any questions that they might have of us. Um, and for folks who maybe already have someone that they're corresponding with, we encourage them to set aside the time in order to sort of be an accountability mechanism um, because we know that it people are busy and it can be easy for um, correspondence to sort of slip to the back burner. Um, and so it's also an opportunity for people who have a letter that they need to write to sort of treat the Zoom session as like the radio in the background and write their letter to their pen pal.
2: Yeah. And we also, you know, extend the invitation to fellowship for those who are interested in that. We have a weekly um, service on Sundays at two o'clock central of the Apostles Fellowship, um, where we you know, have Bible study and, uh, you know, proclamation of the word. And we also have a Wednesday night Bible study, which is topical um, right now, focused on um, lucidity and spiritual vision. Um, So, you know, that's a context if you're interested in some of what we've been talking about around sort of uh, liberation Bible study and anti-imperial theology, it's a space to see, you know, how that really gets worked out in relationship, you know, with the text of the Bible. Uh, We're also collaborating with the Study and Struggle Initiative, um, which is studyandstruggle.com, which is like a national um, abolitionist political education uh, project that's based in Mississippi. And so uh, it's offering a great curriculum that's an introduction to abolition. So if you want to connect with that, again, you can write to us at abolitionapostles at gmail. And we're also going to launch uh, for Christian abolitionists and those who would like, you know, fellow travelers. We're going to have a reading group starting in September for um, Eric Griffith's book, *The Fall of the Prison: Biblical Perspectives on Prison Abolition*. Uh, It's an early book from 1993 that lays out a lot of scriptural foundation for prison abolition. And I think it's a very valuable text um, to examine at this moment. And especially if people are like Christians, but trying to figure out how abolition fits in, or if they're abolitionists who ran screaming from a Christian childhood, but are it's somehow pulling at them now, um, it's a safe space um, to study um, some of this stuff together. Um, so, you know, that's, that's some of the stuff we're doing right now.
0: Well, we're so grateful that you guys were able to, to make some time for us and, uh, share a little bit about what you guys are doing. And we look forward to hearing a lot more. definitely keep us up to date. And, uh, we hope that, um,
2: folks will check you out. Thank Thank you so much for inviting us. We really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you should check out Abolition Apostles. As we said in the beginning, Abolition Church is their Twitter handle, and they're also on Facebook. Uh, Lots of great stuff that you already know about that you can get involved in because you just listened to an hour of this podcast. You can support us if you want to on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you do, there's another podcast there that we do every week on current events and dumb jokes, and you can find all that kind of stuff that we don't do on this podcast over there. Uh, Let's see, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. We're on Facebook. We have a somewhat dormant group (laughs) right now (laughs) called The Magnificast Basement that perhaps one day the the spirit of the Lord will descend upon and activate once more. Um, Who knows? And uh, until then, our music as always is by Amaria Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week Keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, where well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold nights, but we might. might.